Radio Entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by hosts... Patrick. And Dan. And today we're here to talk about the, I guess the pre, not really the pre-production of Blade Runner 2049, but what, what what's the exact, like, what, what would you call this? I'll call it like the pre-pre-into the pre-production. I, I think we should call this the gathering storm. <laughs> oh, that's so... The pre-pre-into the pre-pre-production. <laughs> The Prefontaine. No, this is this is we're talking about. There's a stage before a movie starts getting made, right? Where a bunch of people decide to make development. It. It's called development. That's development. The term. Okay, there we go. The development. Okay. Let's just keep talking. Okay. <laughs> we don't have to be all formal about it. That's true. Yeah. So, so this was. So you know, there, obviously, the the production of this movie is is there's a ton of you know research. A lot we're going to be talking about on it. The personnel. There's a lot to talk about. But before that happened, there was this kind of miracle, a series of miracles where this very abstract idea of revisiting Blade Runner went from being something that was either a money pit or a fever dream into something that was both financially viable and possible. And this is something where we touched on this a little bit last episode, but there were a lot of stops and starts over the ensuing decades, right? And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the people who made it creatively didn't own the rights to it, which is something that's very common because depending on the arrangements with the financials, you know, and the, the financiers of something, as a creator, you might not own your content. It's very common. Um, and of course, when Blade Runner premiered, you know, it was in and out of theaters in a heartbeat. Um, it was swallowed up by movies like E.T., um, you know, it was uh, not financially hugely successful. It didn't make a very big splash, and it was sort of here and gone. And um, 1980s science fiction marched on with the, the beat of a drum that was dictated by populism and by optimism and by fantasy, right? And Blade Runner kind of sat there as this thing that was forgotten about really until home video became a bigger thing, and then we had new cuts of it, and blah, 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 as we've discussed at Infinitum. Um, but before all that happened, uh, it was sort of, it was jettisoned as a project that was a failure, essentially, right? Um, Ridley Scott moved on to other things. Harrison Ford went on to much bigger things. Um, and, you know, it just sort of sat there. And then about eight years ago or so at this point, uh, things started moving once again. And what's amazing is that for all of the stops and starts through the decades, Cynthia and Bud Yorkin, who were owning the rights at this point to the film, set things in motion. And the environment in which that happened and the person, the people surrounding that were such that it actually happened for once. So we thought we would take some time tonight 
to unpack why that might have been, uh, why the right people ended up being attracted to it, and why we ended up with this incredible director, Denis Villeneuve, attached to this film, who I don't think, I mean, I, I, I would not have thought, I would not have assumed he would have been the next Blade Runner director, although it would have been like a dream of mine. Um, I would not have assumed Roger Deakins would have done the cinematography, although I would have literally, that would have been my dream team for this movie, you know? I wouldn't have assumed Ryan Gosling would play the lead in this. I wouldn't have assumed Harrison Ford would be back. There's all these things that, like, I wouldn't have assumed would have happened. But now that they've happened, they yeah, feel I'm inevitable. To where to go. So tonight, we hope <clears> to kind of break down well. some of the steps along the way to making that happen. And uh, that's kind of where we are. When this film was announced, of course, everything was in place. Denis was in place. Alkin, um, everything was going. So at, everything was at that point in terms of fandom was just a fever dream. It was just a what if speculation, what could the story be? Um, so, you know, much of this stuff that we're discussing right now is stuff that it had already transpired by the time they got into production. Uh, production didn't start until 2016, a little bit more than it, like a year and a half before the film premiered, which was actually for a $150 million, $125 million film is pretty late Usually films st start shooting two years before their, their premiere, especially with the kind of um, effects uh, schedule that they have. And they did. Um, yeah, so 100 I days shooting was surprising to me too, considering yeah, that's a the lot. number of sets and how complex it was. And granted, most of it was in the same location, but still 100 days is pretty quick. Typically, as you know, most films shoot for 30 days, maybe 60, but typically it's a 30-day shoot. And so 100 days, I mean, but also... The size of the, the right. Picture. I mean, for the scope of this film, yeah, days yeah. seemed a little tight. And from the description of people on set and people in the production, um, Denise seems to run a pretty efficient machine and a pretty efficient operation. Certainly compared to, not to describe Ridley Scott as inefficient in back in '81 when they were filming the original Blade Runner, but certainly a lot fewer problems a lot not all this like um you know like mutiny on the set and you know interaction between british crew and you know or sorry american crew and british director all that kind of stuff um so i think that and and we've also talked about it before how by this point you have a lot more fans of blade runner and nerds who are like in the film industry working as gaffers as lighting as all those people on the set and so super excited to do this project compared to doing some whatever science fiction movie like i don't know it's dark and stinky and moldy and annoying and the director's a like kind of an asshole you know what i mean like they didn't have any of that going on so i think some of it credit where credit is due is due to Villeneuve being a phenomenal director with quite a lot of experience under his belt at this point. Um, but um, also some of it is just circumstance of the timing, et cetera. But yeah, so I think they ran a pretty efficient uh, set and production. They did. And I think you're, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I think you're touching on something that's really important, Dan, with, as we get into this development and, and pre-production stuff is that this was a movie that was not being made by people who were unaware of its significance, right? The first one was made completely by people who they were just showing up for work and thinking like, this isn't like the book. Like, what, what is this movie? Why are there so many rewrites? What's going on? This was made by, by a bunch of people who were in love with the original movie and were so keenly aware of how important it was, right? And it was being made for a world that was also in love with the original movie, right? The, the, the world that greeted the first premieres of Blade Runner 
was not receptive to it. It was not a hit, right, when it came out. But in the intervening decades, and I really think that the final cut had an enormous amount to do with it, but I also think the VHS release did. Um, I, I think that like things had changed. And I think that the people who were making films in the late 2010s are people who were going to theaters and falling in love with cinema in the early 1980s, you know? And I think that that Denis and his compatriots were were among them. And I think that they understood the importance of this and they understood how they didn't want to let anybody down who was associated with it. What's fascinating about 2049 is in terms of the lead, the lead in or the build up to it. And as they're planning it and as they're negotiating everything, the budget, the budget was huge. And, you know, you are talking about people who knew about the significance of the original film. They knew if they knew what they're doing, even in terms of the studio executives, they knew that Blade Runner was a hit or Blade Runner was has been a hit in fandom, but it wasn't a hit when it released. It was too everything. It was too cerebral. It was too esoteric. It was it was not a summer blockbuster film, and yet they sunk 125 plus million just for the budget. Not even considering probably another 25 million or more for promotion into a movie that probably wasn't going to make its money back. Um, at least not theatrically, and yet they went forward with it. That's surprising to me. It's surprising to me, especially with the, of course, the aftermath being the disappointment from the studio that the that the um, film didn't perform the way that they wanted it to. But I could have told you that before it released. I would have, I, you know, I, I would have bet good money that the movie would have had made, you know, two hundred million dollars domestic. Um, of course, it didn't. It made ninety one million dollars domestic. Um, but again, it's just interesting series of decisions, even though the film ended up being amazing, some of the decisions leading up to it probably weren't the best. That's true. I mean, weren't the best in terms of money-making and for the people who- Yeah, a business. In terms of were... just business, I'm not talking creative, right. I'm just talking business. They, the budget was too big if, um, and they probably should have scaled it back. And Denny could have probably would have made an equally as brilliant film if, and all I'm talking about is having it pay off a little bit more in box office returns. That's it. Uh, aside from that, we, we, we all know, everyone listening, us, we all know that the film is a success. But as we discuss the, the development of it, it's just one very surprising factor in the development of it. Like, are you guys really thinking this through? Who are you talking to? And oftentimes they talk to an echo chamber. Oh, this is great. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And so everyone's telling everybody what they want to hear. And then they green light it and they think it's going to be this big tent pole thing. And it's not. But we could have told them that beforehand. But again, it's just one of the things that are in the mix. And fortunately for us, it produced a miracle of a film. And I think one of the reasons why they had that swing for the fences, fences approach was specifically Alcon. And, and I, that's something that I think it's easy to, to overlook a little bit. Alcon is sort of the, the X factor in this whole thing because, so the Yorkins had decided, and you guys can speak more to this too because I know you've been reading some production diaries. The Yorkins and Bud and Cynthia had decided that because of the amount of, you know, Blade Runner is just in popular consciousness now. Everybody has it on Blu-ray. Everybody's talking about it. There's all these fan groups that are popping up. It's, it's really, a, it's become a cultural phenomenon. It could be a viable time financially to take this chance. Um, and they had this really fortuitous meeting with Alcon Entertainment, who was just off 
The Blind Side, right, which was a hugely grossing film. They had also already worked with Denis on Prisoners. They had had a string of big financial hits, and they had money. They had the ability to finance large films, right? And they also happened to be very big fans of Blade Runner. So they were able to come to this arrangement in like 2011, I believe, where um, they were, they purchased the rights from the Yorkins and then were able to go back to Ridley Scott and say, hey, things are actually ready to move. If you're still interested in this, are we ready to go on it? Uh, and I think, so I, I think it was, you know, it was swept up by fans of the series who had a lot of new money from a string of successes. They were ready to go for it. Uh, and I think that that sort of, um, that is what to me characterizes the people who make this movie in general. It's people who are very, very, very passionate about the source material. Like Jamie, you talk about this all the time, right? About who should make the next alien film, right? It has to be people who are absolutely in love with this and want to tell new stories with it, right? It has to be people who deeply, deeply care. Uh, and I think that Alcon is a great example of, um, of people who really care about the property and want to shepherd it. And then you see that with, and, you know, so I don't want to jump ahead too much, but part of why they went straight to Denis, other than the fact that they already worked with him, they knew what he was capable of, he was in the midst of the string of hits, is that, you know, Andrew Kosov had had a conversation with Denis, and Denis had mentioned that Blade Runner was his favorite movie, and that it kind of launched in his mind, you know, like, if I ever get the rights to this franchise, like, this, this is the guy to do it, right? Um, Michael Green, likewise, part of why he was hired is because he had mentioned to somebody else that Blade Runner was his favorite film. This is a movie being made by people who are like obsessed with the source material. And I think that um, it's people who are by and large in their like 40s and 50s, people who are, you know, kind of at the height of their creative career, but they're also still kind of in that mentality of trying to prove themselves and make a name for themselves. They were of age when the original came out that they could see it in the theaters and they could fall in love with it that way. Uh, and I, and so to me, that's a, a really huge thing that I don't want to miss in this conversation is that like, it was a, it was a labor of love, you know, and, and for, for true labors of love, money is, is easier to be liberal with, right? It's, it's, it's easier to take a chance on something um, and go swing for the fences if it's something that you deeply love and you want to contribute to the legacy of, right? Yeah, definitely. For sure. I mean, we've talked before about Denis kind of having that initial meeting with um, Gosling and Harrison Ford. And I, I feel like there was a third actor there, but, you know, basically sat down with them and, and we talked about it before, but he said, you know, this, we're likely to fail in this project. It's we're taking on a lot. Um, we're following up on this great classic that's got this cult following, but let's just give it our best and really, you know, put all of our creative and our creative efforts and our professional talent into this. And it's interesting, you know, I was trying to think of parallels of, cause obviously this isn't the only industry where you can have a team that's motivated, being compensated properly, being motivated properly, has the right background, um, is excited, has the experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and puts out a great product and you can still have a financial failure, right? Not all industries are like that, um, but certainly film is one of them and it makes for just this, yeah, I can't imagine what, what a challenging um, place to be working that is, especially when it's your money on the line or your company's money on the line. Um, and of course, they made the really smart decision. We didn't throw the name in there, although I'm sure we're going to talk to him. Uh, we're going to talk about him, but um, Hampton Fancher, you know, being brought back and getting the call from Ridley about um, turning sort of, well, talking about making a second film. And then he talked about turning this short story that he'd been working on uh, where the character of K already kind of existed into the script, the initial script for 2049. Um, 
not to mention the opening scene of the film, which was already really been storyboarded by Ridley for the original film. Um, so it's a lot of elements of the past and the future coming together, which kind of says it all about the Blade Runner universe, really. And it specifically says a lot about how much this stayed with the people who made it through the decades, right? Because Hampton had been working on that short story the day he got the call from Ridley, right? Like he was like, yeah, I've been thinking about this this entire time. And Ridley, when he was approached by Alcon, they were like, you know, have you ever considered doing a sequel? And he was like, I've, I have ideas for 12 sequels to this movie. Like there's prequels. I know how this sits. This was never intended to be a single island. This was, this was always existing within a world, right? So like the, the people who, you know, waited three decades to come back to it, it actually, it was with them those three decades. It just hadn't happened yet. Some interesting trivia. Um, Alcon just couldn't produce this film by themselves. They didn't have the rights. They had to purchase the rights from Bud Yorkin. But Bud Yorkin owned the rights with two, one ex-wife and then his current wife. Buddy Yorkin has now passed away. His wife, Cynthia, still lives on. She's much younger than him. His other wife, Peggy, or Peg, owned a 25% stake in the IP. And she wouldn't sell. So they had to negotiate all of that stuff before. And then she negotiated down from 25 to 15%, but got caught up in court before they could even do anything. And that struggle went on for a long time. That's why it lingered ten for years, a while. Right? Yeah. Ten, ten yeah. years of that back and forth. Yeah, which yeah. is funny because Blade Runner wasn't that profitable anyways. So I don't understand what they were fighting about. Like, okay, yeah, maybe a studio wants to do another movie, but it's not going to be, it wasn't that, it wasn't going to be this like, oh, Star Wars. Yeah, you know, this is, it wasn't Star Wars. It's very interesting. It's also interesting to hear Ridley Scott talking about Blade Runner in terms of this kind of tentpole thing. I don't know why he gets on those trains. Certainly Blade Runner 2049 is successful, but it's not a Star Wars. It's not a Marvel. Um, It's not an alien even. It's it's very different. And I, I don't know if it can sustain. I mean, our fingers are crossed for 2049. Our fingers are crossed for Black Lotus. Um, There's already people, already people, going like, I don't know about this for Black Lotus and they've seen two stills that were released last night. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sort of glad that Ridley Scott it didn't take off into this like, oh, we're doing four films over here and two TV shows. Like, I'm so glad it just keeps it more precious. It keeps it more sacred. Uh, but he does have that propulsive energy for anything that he does, you know, and it's funny because like this, like you're saying, this is not the only franchise where he's wanted to do these extraordinarily extended you know trilogies and quadrilogies and uh, you know quintuplegies or whatever um i think that yeah I, I you're totally right that this this would not have fared well with that but I, i'm also surprised what's funny with ridley scott one of the many things that's funny about him is that you know he has all these huge ideas and he wants to do it now he wants to move on he's like ready like why are we sitting around you know talking about it but then if he can't do it he has like no ego about just producing it or moving away and kind of letting somebody else take the reins on it. And so he, you know, he of course initially didn't want somebody else to direct it. And indeed he was announced in 2011 by Alcon as the director of the film. That was what like the first press release said. So like he was attached as a director. And then of course, because, you know, he was working on Prometheus. So they had to wait and then other things were happening. And then he was filming Covenant and it wasn't going to work out based on, you know, Harrison Ford's availability, et cetera. So they had to get another director. And, uh, and he, you know, like he liked Denny, he thought he was talented, but he didn't want him to do it. And then finally he was convinced. And what I love is that I, I get the sense, not having been there on the set, obviously, I wish I could have been, I get the sense that he was doing a lot of um, 
blocking and shoving for Denny in this process in terms of just kind of reassuring people that like he has what it takes, he has the vision, like kind of, you know, get out of his way. I don't think really Scott had that much creative input into it. I, I think he did in the beginning. And then I think he kind of like backed off and moved on to his other projects. And I think he just like attached his name to it for financial reasons, but also because he has, you know, he's, I, I don't, I don't know if, if Denny at that point had final cut privileges. He probably did. Um, but like, you know, Ridley Scott is, is the final cut privilege of final cut privilege directors, right? Like he's somebody who just, you know, the studio will put it out if he directs it um, for better or for worse. So I think that um, it's, it's amazing how he, and of course then he, you know, since then he's moved on and done 30 or 40 other projects. It's absolutely insane. The amount of things that he produced, we can't even keep up with him, you know? Uh, so he's somebody who's a whirlwind of energy, but, um, but he's not, a, he's not super precious about it. And, and that's something that I actually admire about him quite a lot. He was certainly responsible for the story though, at least getting it written, asking for ideas, where should this go? Um, and probably the best way he has ever done that with alien, he's been very different as we've discussed ad nauseum. Um, but with this, he's like, this man knows the story. Let's give it to Hampton Fancher and let Hampton Fancher roll with it. And he did. Uh, of course, I know you and I, all three of us have anecdotes to what that process was for Hampton Fancher, for Ridley Scott. Even Ridley Scott said in a couple of interviews that he wrote the story, but he didn't want to like take credit for it. Um, so I, it's it's interesting. I think I think Ridley Scott is precious a little bit about it. I think that he is a little bit egotistical about Blade Runner. I mean, even when it released, he was like, I would have cut 45 minutes out of it, you know? He, mm. And that's why I didn't do well, you know? Um, I think he's a bit of a machine these days in terms of what he creates and how quickly he does it. And he's good on budgets and he put, he pumps them out and he go, he's on to the next thing. Um, but it is fascinating despite how well it went in terms of development, pre-production, production, post-production release that it was very streamlined. Um, it might've taken years in terms of delay and people being busy, but, and of course, then there's the, the whole, controversy and this came out in an article I can't remember I have to find it but where it was essentially Harrison Ford they gave him the option you can wait for Ridley Scott or we can move on right. to someone who's available and and Harrison Ford made that decision said we need to move on and then they gave it to Denny and Denny was being eyed by Alkin before um, Ridley Scott Alkin had worked with Denny on Prisoners um, they had produced some of his stuff they really loved him um, and then, of course, he did Arrival. I think Arrival came out the year before, right, in 2016? He was he was still making it when they approached him for 2049. Yeah. And, um, and then as he was editing Arrival, he was in, in early development for 2049. So, yeah, yeah. it's the year before. Yeah. It's just, it's fascinating how all that, and he's such a, the, and of course we'll get into that eventually, but he's such this unlikely director who all of a sudden it fell into his lap because he was competent, you know, and because he was singular. And he, and he turned it down initially. On a on a second ask, he decided to take mm -hmm. it. But initially, he turned it down because it was just too it was too it was incomprehensible to him. Like, how are you going to touch this sacred cow and come away alive? Like, how how would you survive? Especially while he was busy doing another film and just too busy. You know? Right. There's Here's so an interesting question, and maybe we can talk about this. Maybe this is a question for another time. But we've seen the final cut of 2049, which he did not have final say in. He did not have final cut, but he did say that the studio was very much like. We want you to have Final Cut, and we're going to work with you. But they didn't give him exclusive Final Cut in his contract. But mm. by the time he cut it, they released what he did. 
and they said, we love it. Let's go with Which it. Which is interesting because it is, is in, in effect is Final Cut Privileges, but even though they didn't actually sign it over to him, which I think, again, I think is really Scott being involved. I really think that he, he negotiated something. With it. Anyway, maybe, maybe, yeah. Uh, but uh, it'd be interesting. I'm glad Ridley Scott didn't direct it. I, I don't think it would have been a good film if he would have made it, to be honest with you. Not as good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think Denny did uh, uh, such an extraordinary job. And I think what what I, something, again, going back to Alcon, that I think was so because 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 they they worked with like thirty directors at that point right he wasn't like the only person they worked with, but the experience on making Prisoners, which of course also featured Roger Deakins right, um, was was enough for them to remember him and think like man, and I, I, this is in an interview with Andrew Kosov where he's saying, you know um, that essentially you know we didn't get him as a science fiction director we got him because he can direct noir really well right he understands darkness really well and, and, and indeed you look at the movies that he directed leading up to this you have Asandi, you have uh, prisoners in 2013 you have sicario you have these like very bleak very intense movies Holy technique right and they're all about loss and darkness and war and, and difficulty death. Right? and death yeah. mm-hmm. and they're they're beautifully shot and they're so like resonant but they're so hard to watch um, and then, of course, you have Arrival, which is this wonderful kind of yin to the yang of those films, which is, you know, very optimistic in spite of how, you know, emotionally difficult it is. Um, I, I just, I think it's so, it's it's a brilliant, it's easy to overlook Alcon in this equation, I think. And I don't want to because I, I really, I, I really feel very um, grateful to them that they took a chance on him and that they did what what was necessary to secure him and they came back to him a second time. And that they did the right thing. Jamie, I want to get back to your question in a second. I'm not, I'm not forgetting about it. But I just, I, I think that Alcon, um, like they, with without them spearheading this thing and getting it out of, it wasn't even in production hell. It just wasn't even in production. It was just going back and forth and back and forth. Without them just saying, okay, let's just throw money at this thing and go. Um, I don't, I don't know when this would have ever happened. But anyway, so Jamie, you were asking uh, if if we would have chosen Ridley Scott as a director. Yeah. What do you think, Dan? I, I wouldn't have just based on covenant <laughs> Prometheus. No, um, just based on his shift. I think the quality of the products for the most part, um, where he shifted to uh, producing and executive producing as opposed to directing, I think a lot of his best um, directorial uh, films are in the past, you know, um, thinking of gladiator and um we've been talking about the last couple of days online kingdom of heaven thank you um and uh and the martian you know i i would say the martian is probably the last ridley scott film i saw that i thought was really well done that he directed you know he's produced a lot of good stuff but you know prometheus and covenant had their issues which you guys have talked about a lot on perfect organism um and he just even at 81 or however old he is, he's just involved in so much stuff. You know, I just don't think he necessarily has the space um, to be taking the time to direct because he's, you know, he's quoted as saying, you know, you always have to look forward and never look backwards. And he's like, on to the next thing and the next film that I got to do, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like, I don't know that he has the space in his head for that the way he did when he was a younger man and maybe less proven to a certain extent. Um, but you know, I I really don't think we would see another gladiator caliber film out of um, Ridley Scott directing in, in in the lifetime he has left. I think that um, really he's 
if he can stick to it, it's a smart move for him to go into the background. Obviously, he has a wealth of knowledge and experience, and he's an artist, literally, like he's a drawing artist. You know, he does, he can do incredible storyboards and really help people visualize um, an idea. But um, yeah, I don't think I would have chosen him, honestly. I, I think we would have ended up with a lesser product had he directed 2049. I think if I had known what I know now, yeah, never in a million years would I have chosen him. Uh, if I had known what I knew in 2016, yeah, I, I would have shit my pants at the idea of Ridley Scott directing a Blade Runner movie. Like I, I would have, I would have loved to have seen that. Um, but you know, hindsight is 2020. Um, and who's to say that he wouldn't have made an equally great? He's made some of the greatest films ever released. I mean, you know, who's who's to say he couldn't pull another miracle out of the bag? You know. Um, but I mean, what we have from Denis is just so profound that I couldn't even um, imagine it. It's you're mentioning his, you know, Ridley Grams. It's funny that. Uh, Denis is also a really visual director, and we'll talk about this in our episode on him. But even though he didn't, you know, go to art school and he doesn't have like the technical faculty to storyboard for himself, like he speaks through his storyboard artists. He's very, you know, he does a lot of very iterative work with them, even very early on where they're just talking about big ideas. And anybody who has the art and soul of Blade Runner by Tanya LaPointe, which is a freaking amazing book, will see a lot of evidence of this. You know, um, in the very beginnings of this project, he was already there with Roger Deakins and with, you know, story consultants and with Hampton and Fancher and Michael Green um, going from the beginning and drawing things out and seeing like, what would this world actually look like? What would these characters actually function as? What would the camera movement look like? What would the lighting be? What would the, you know, the, the dynamism of that atmosphere, what would that actually appear? And, and, and so he comes at it with this very visual perspective. Even if you look at a movie like Prisoners, which, um, you know, I, I want to kind of go back to, I know I'm going back to it a lot, but it makes sense because that was the previous Alcon and, and Denny thing. Like that is on the, uh, way more visually arresting than I would have expected a film like that to be. When I heard that was coming out, A, I was like, Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal, sign me up, they're fucking amazing actors. I'm, I was excited about it. Um, I knew that, th that he was a good director because I'd heard of his name, but I didn't see Ensemble at that point. I didn't know anything about him. Um, but you know, I was like, wow, this movie looks you know, cool. I bet it's going to be some kind of gritty, you know, noir thriller that, you know, I, I was hoping it would be something kind of like seven, you know, something where it's just sort of like, you know, psychological and dark. And what I got was something so like meditative on the nature of evil that I, I, I was like not prepared for something that was, that was that kind of restrained and poetic. And the visual style is a huge part of that. There are shots in Prisoners that I think are iconic. I, I, I really think the beginning, the taillight on the back of the RV, to me, that is like, that is iconic filmmaking right there. And it's and it's nobody could have shot that the way Roger Deakins shot it with the ambient light. You know, like there's no external light source on it. It's just this twilight framing this, you know, oblong tail light. Um, and like his his attention to visuals is a huge reason why. And and I think that's what sold Ridley on him because of course you know Ridley in like five interviews said it takes one to to it takes one to see one right about Denny. And that was when he finally kind of got on board with him. And I really think it was seeing the way that Denny was processing visually what the story would look like that kind of won him over. Um, anyway, something that I, I want to circle back around to just in terms of development is that when you get a director on board, they, you know, end up getting a lot of creative input, right? So producers are the ones who ultimately set things in motion, right? They're the ones who, you know, get finances. They're the ones who secure rights to things. They're the one who get distribution sure rights, blah, 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 blah. But um, once they choose a director, if, if the director is somebody that, that they've, you know, that they're going with because they respect, you know, they want to work with them. Um, you know, the director gets a lot of creative input early on into where things are going. So at this point, there was already a story, right? That story was already a treatment that Fancher had written, based, as Dan was saying, on this short story. 
and on other story ideas contributed or not contributed by Ridley Scott and others who were present in that circle at that time. Um, and then you have Michael Green coming in to create a screenplay out of it. That was, you know, something that, that was shootable. And then you have Denny come, come in and then he brings with him all of these other new creative choices. And so when you get Denny, you get Roger Deakins, you get Dennis Gassner, you get a lot of these figures who, you know, I mean, have become so uh, iconic for their connection to this that I don't think would have been there if it hadn't been for going with this, you know, Quebecois film director who was sort of unproven. At, at least in 2016, uh, and like brought with him this wealth of, of uh, extraordinary beauty and depth in the personnel that he attracted to this project. I think what makes Denis singular too, and I think to relate it back to the discussion of directors and you know bringing in their teams, and I think really what sets him apart and other directors are typically you have directors when they're hired for a film or they have a film that they want to write or, or direct and they they have a studio that gets behind them. All they are doing is concentrating on that film. That's all that they're doing. Ridley Scott is not that man. Ridley Scott is concentrating on 10 different pro- projects at once while he's making a movie. And you can see it. It's very evident. It's not as coherent. It's not as... Um, but I think the beauty of, of Denis and also to talk about the iconic imagery in Prisoners. I actually saw Sicario before I saw Prisoners. I saw Sicario before I knew who Denis was because I thought, well, this looks really interesting. It looked really dark. and But then I had seen, I saw Prisoners next and that scene where he finds the, the door behind the refrigerator and he goes down and you see that man in the chair kind of rocking back. That's terrifying. That's like exorcist level terrifying. And that movie scares me. I can't watch Prisoners very, it scares me. Like, just to see where humanity is capable of going. Um, I don't like to engage it, even though it's, you have this good, not good ending, but it's somewhat of a hopeful ending. It's rough. That is not an easy, I mean, it's, you know, the, obviously in the film, the the people who are looking for their children then become what they hate. They then become the same people who maybe abducted their child at any rate um, to pull it back from that. I think he was a brilliant choice, brilliant choice. I wouldn't even never, someone would have asked me, Oh, who should direct it? I would have been like, Oh, Christopher Nolan, you know, somebody that I knew someone that's bankable. Certainly Christopher Which is Nolan. who Andrew Kosov wanted to direct it. Yeah. <laughs> famously, yeah. Right. Yeah. Did he turn uh, it pr- down? Prisoners is great. I know he was never actually asked about it. It's just oh, okay. Andrew Kosov had mentioned it in an interview and it became like a news item, but but Christopher Nolan actually said later that he was never actually approached about it. And he also said that he would not have done it. So Interesting. Um, and I'm glad because Christopher Nolan has a brand, you know. Something that's great is that Ridley Scott in 1982 and Denis Villeneuve in 2017 didn't really have an established brand yet. They were both, you know, they had, they had done only a couple of motion pictures by that point, each of them. Then he had done more than Ridley had, right? Um, and they had been, you know, I mean, Ridley had done a period duelist, you know, piece about saber fighters and alien. And Denis had done, you know, a war story, a story about child abduction, a story about the drug cartels, and a story about communicating with aliens. I mean, like, you know, that like, there's no, you know, so I think... Uh, Let's not forget Enemy in here. We're kind of not mentioning that. Oh my God, Enemy, which is which is one of my favorite, like the poster behind me, that's one of my favorite films that he's ever also done, right? creepy and weird and disturbing. Also incredibly Dark disturbing through. and interesting. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't mention it's that. It's also like a drug. I could watch that movie again and again. There's, there's a compulsion in that movie. 
to when I we watch have to it. do that frame rate like yeah, asap i i fucking love that film so I need much to watch it again even though i've seen it like several times i need to watch it again yeah, and the so novel too oh it's so good but um but but part of why movies like prisoners and we're not i don't want to make this into only denny although we we can talk about it part of why i think prisoners hit both of us so hard because like i was saying so I, I went into it again thinking it was kind of like Seven and that it was going to be this kind of crime thriller and it was going to be kind of dark. And Seven, I adore. I love, obviously I love David Fincher. I love the film. I think it's brilliant. But it's a movie where I don't, I'm never confused about anything in that movie. Like there is a really bad guy out there they're trying to catch and he's all fucked up and he's doing crazy things. And it's very scary and very sad. But it's not, it's not, it's doesn't, it, it's not actually horrifying because I understand it, right? When I watch Prisoners, I, I'm horrified because I understand it less and less as it goes on. And I start losing sight of what I actually think is okay, like what my personal moral scale would be in this situation. And I just sort of give in to the poetry of that film. And the poetry of that film is written in very dark words. It's a very hard to watch movie. Um, and like that, that's art. Like, you know, art is something where you can, you can confuse somebody to the point where they become afraid of themselves by the end of the movie. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. Um, Anyway, so Roger Deakins, of course, gets pulled into this thing. And uh, by that point, so this, so you have the script that was already finished in 2013 by Michael Green, I believe it's 2013, based on years of back and forths with Scott and Fancher. You have uh, Hampton's dialogue, which has survived largely unchanged into it. So it still has the tonal quality that Blade Runner has because something that we don't talk about very much, and I don't know why, is the dialogue of Blade Runner, and I don't mean the voiceover, like, because that's separate and that's by somebody else. The way his characters speak to each other in Blade Runner is not a pastiche of noir films. It's easy to kind of assume that because stylistically it's a noir movie, but it's funny, I'm saying this and Jamie's uh, blinds are like, you, you have like this like shutter quality in behind your head right now. It looks like you're in Blade Runner, pretty cool. There's like an aesthetic quality to the dialogue that reminds people of noir, but it's really Hampton Fancher that you're hearing. The way that he writes characters is is completely idiosyncratic and strange and amazing, right? Hampton Fancher sounds a certain way when he writes a character. And I think part of why 2049 works so well is that that sound survives. They still sound like they live in the world of Blade Runner, which as Denny and Alcon and everybody else who was making it very early on decided that they are not going to try to make this into our universe projected out. This is going to be this parallel storyline, right? So it makes sense in a continuity perspective that the characters back then would speak like the characters in the future, blah, 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 blah. And then you have, uh, so you have the script, you have the story, you have a screenplay, and then you have uh, a look that starts to develop by getting Dennis Gassner behind production and really Roger Deakins behind cinematography. And again, because you have this visual director in uh, Denny Villeneuve, he's working very closely with Deakins from the very beginning in terms of what the actual tonal palette of this thing is going to be. And that leads, of course, to other creative decisions because who, you know, that's that's why, how are we going to make this actually happen? Well, there's Weta. We should approach them. They do the best miniature work ever. Look at what they did with Lord of the Rings. Like they, you know, if we're going to make a realistic film set in the future, there's no other way to do it than with the same technology they used in the original film, which is miniatures, right? So I guess this is just my way of saying that it, there's a sense of snowballing inevitability as 20... 13 goes to 2014, goes to 2015, goes to Denny being hired, goes to 2016 in pre-production, goes to this thing being shot and then released. Um, and it's just extraordinary to look back and see it all come together. And I feel like, um, I don't know, we're really lucky that all these people just flock to it. Yeah, I mean, really, and, and I almost want to say the real world, that movie shouldn't have been made for the money that I, I was 
as I was discussing before, budget shouldn't have been that big. It should have been pared down. They should have thought more about this wasn't this very successful before. What can we do? Should we just, in, especially in, in the time of streaming services and a lot of IPs going to streaming, um, they chose to tell the story right. And uh, it's it, they just they had every every duck in a row, perfectly, perfectly timed. Um, every decision that was made, even though maybe even at the time it was full of tension or doubt, they went with it and it paid off. Yeah, speaking of uh, writing the story right, and we're not going to get into the plot or story or anything like that in this particular episode, but I, w- I wanted to share a couple of quotes from uh, The Art and Soul Blade Runner, if you guys have that book. One is from Hampton Fancher, one's from Michael Green. So it gives you a little bit of insight into conceptually how they were writing the story and and how they fit it together. Um, And Hampton Fancher's quote comes from a place where empathy is a central theme to the Blade Runner universe. He said, quote, when we really know what it's like to feel like somebody else, we don't want to do bad things to them. Empathy is a leading quest in our destiny because that'll determine our success. And then Michael Green said, the first film was about quantity of life. How much life do I have left? This film is about quality of life. How do I live my life? And how do I make it meaningful? And I think it, those two quotes are particularly interesting because they really blend those two concepts together and you really feel that um, throughout the script. And you can feel at once the influence of the original film on Hampton Fancher, obviously, since he wrote both of them, and the original film's influence as a product to Michael Green in his writing um, in terms of how he saw the characters and that specific mood and writing style that Patrick was talking about where Fancher's characters feel like Fancher's characters. Um, So yeah, I think that was also a really good call. And who knows, maybe that came from the successes of, you know, starting with one writer in the original and then having to fire, add another writer, you know, and mix things. Um, but it's possible that both Ridley Scott and maybe Denis kind of saw something in bringing in two writers from the beginning and having them work together, um, which I find fascinating and certainly worked really well in this film. And something else that I, I think is interesting looking at the stage of this project is how a lot of bridges that I, I, I would have assumed had been burned actually weren't, right? Like Ridley and Hampton were still getting along great, going through ideas for this thing for a long time. Um, Ridley and Harrison Ford, who had, had really appeared to not like each other very much for quite a long time, um, you know, sort of swallowed their pride and worked together on this thing. Um, and Her- we should, you know, at least mention Harrison Ford, uh, like, interestingly, had sort of distanced himself a little bit from this, wasn't, you know, super on board with it. And then it was the script that pushed him over the edge, as, as we mentioned previously on this show. Um, once he read the story, he was he was in it. Um, and uh, and actually, and I believe it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was Hampton Fancher who chose Gosling, according to, uh, it might have been the Wired article, or it might have been, I don't know, something. But, but at some point, Ridley had, so the way Ridley tells it, which who knows, is that he had asked Hampton Fancher who, who would play Kay, and Hampton Fancher had said it should be Ryan Gosling, and Ridley said, okay, we'll make it happen. And then within like two weeks, Ryan Gosling was there, and they were like in talks to make this thing. Denis also said, though, that it was his, Ryan Gosling was on his mind as well before he even knew, which is funny mm. because even when this was announced, right in my head, a lot of other people were thinking Ryan Gosling would be a great in this role. It was like this prophetic, like, 
everybody knew who should be in this movie, you know? And he's incredible for it, isn't he? It's, it, it's crazy. I don't know if I would have personally, like he's not, like, he wouldn't have been like my top choice. Like I, I would have probably said Jake Gyllenhaal or something actually personally. I think that would have been really interesting. But I think we would have gotten something a lot more kind of actory out of Jake Gyllenhaal. And I think what, what Ryan Gosling brings to it is this incredible restraint that is just like absolutely uncanny. Um, and we will talk much more about that as this series progresses. But my point being that um, the story of Blade Runner had become the story of this brilliant film that nobody saw, that people underground started falling in love with, that everybody fought about, that nobody knew what to do with. And then all of a sudden in the 2010s, people who loved it came together and they started rebuilding it and they built it into something that was so extraordinary that in some people's estimation, it surpasses the original film, which is absolutely nuts. And there are times when I watch 2049, I mean, when I'm watching 2049, I like it more than the original. After it's over, I'm usually kind of thinking about it. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe I don't. But during the movie, like, there is there is never a time when I'm actually watching the film where I'm not like, this is my favorite movie. <laughs> and then and then it ends, and I'm like, okay, there's you know, I, I can kind of go back down to planet Earth again. Um, but it's just it's just incredible that we have it, and and it's um, it's you know, a miracle, and that's why we've named the series that, and that's why you know, that's this this is the story of seeing a miracle. Um, and and uh, as we head into the next episode, where we're going to focus on the maker of miracles, Danny Villeneuve. Um, you know, we just thought it would be nice to have some context for what was happening when he was coming into this thing. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.